This is the Foundation Podcast. The Texas legislature has hit the ground running last week with organizational hearings being held for 22 different House committees. This was in addition to House Appropriations Subcommittees meeting Monday through Thursday and Senate Finance meeting Monday through Wednesday. And since this could be seen as the first week of the entire legislature being spun up in earnest, it is of no surprise that bills will be heard starting Monday the 8th. The Juvenile Justice and Family Issues Committee will be considering several important items, including a second-look bill on parole for juvenile crimes and a substantive reform of the child welfare system here in the state. I'll be joined by one of my colleagues here shortly to discuss that very matter. In criminal jurisprudence, bills will be heard on a number of issues, including HB 569, which applies layout credit to misdemeanor fines, in short, removing some cumbersome justice system debt from the reentry process, and HB 689, which facilitates remote magistration, the setting of bail. I don't need to tell any of you in the time of COVID why that's an important issue. Ways and Means is also meeting, but the big bill we've been following, HB 59, has been moved to a later date. This bill will advance the state toward the elimination of the school district maintenance and operations ad valorem taxes, or the M&O tax. Human Services will be meeting on Tuesday, where they will be hearing HB 484, which will establish a pilot for direct primary care for folks on Medicaid. We will be joined in a future episode by David Balot, the director of our Right on Healthcare campaign, to explain how direct primary care works and why it is important for patient service and satisfaction. Also, the House General Investigations and Senate Local Government Committees will also be having their organizational hearing. Joining me again on the podcast, and remind me to grab you some commemorative swag on your way out, is Andrew Brown, Distinguished Senior Fellow for a Government for the People campaign. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. And I'm, I got my eye on that ball cap over there with the logo on it. So, Andrew, we called you up to the Big Boy podcast because a big item on the committee bulletin board for the next week is HB 567 and juvenile justice and family issues. Now, this bill deals with reforming child protective services, which has been an issue for the last several sessions. Tell us exactly what's going on in the child welfare space. Absolutely. And, you know, for the better part of the last decade, child welfare in Texas has been a perennial issue that we've had to wrestle with. And it really goes back to some of the problems that existed in the centrally managed child welfare system that Texas had for you know, time immemorial where child welfare was run through the bureaucracy. Well, about 10 years ago, that all came to a head and Texas was sued in federal court because of harm that was coming to kids in the state's permanent managing conservatorship. What this basically means is these are kids who, for whatever reason, are not on the path to being either adopted or being reunited with their birth families, and they're going to spend their life in the care and custody of the state. Turns out that when the centralized bureaucracy was managing this program, these kids were not being treated very well. And there were some horror stories that came out about kids who were abused in care, kids who were being managed with psychotropic medications because of behavioral issues that they were having, some pretty bad things, um, to the point where when the federal judge ultimately ruled against the state, part of her ruling said that kids will enter the care of the state and leave worse off than when they entered. That is not the purpose of child welfare. The purpose of child welfare is to protect kids from harm and reunite them with their families in a better situation or get them adopted into a better situation if reunification is not possible. So we're doing something wrong when kids are coming out worse off than when they entered. So into that space, 
the legislature for a number of sessions has been working to improve the child welfare system in Texas. A lot of that focus has been on decentralizing it and making it community focused. So allowing local communities to take the lead in caring for kids in their regions that enter the foster care system. So, you know, if you live in Dallas, the philosophy is Dallas people know more about what kids in Dallas need than a bureaucrat in Austin does. If you live in Midland, Texas, you are better equipped to take care of kids in Midland than some bureaucrat in Austin is, right? We're bringing these decisions back to the local level and we're seeing great results from that. One thing that did not happen is the investigation side. So when that call comes in with somebody who has suspicions that a child is being abused or neglected, the investigation and the decision to remove that child and place them in foster care still remains with a centralized child protective services system run by the state. And for the better part of the last decade, we have seen the numbers of kids removed increase every single year, notable exception. Last year, it started ticking down a little bit. It's unclear whether that tick down was a result of COVID or if it's indicative of a longer trend. We just have to wait and see if that continues to go down. But that really came to a head. You know, legislators were concerned about the numbers going up and up and up every year, but it really came to a head when we had some high profile cases make the news. The Bright case is one of those down in the Houston area where a child was removed from their family and placed into foster care for no for no reason, essentially. The child fell down, got injured. A doctor at a hospital said, well, this looks like abuse, despite other medical opinions that say, no, this is consistent with the child's fall and the injuries. CPS oversteps, they remove the child. They then proceed to lie under oath and take the fifth when they're asked about why they did what they did and were slammed with, I think it was quarter of a million dollars in sanctions. And my favorite part of that order was the judge in sanctioning the department also ordered them to train their caseworkers on constitutional rights of families, which I just thought was like a beautiful cherry on top of you can't do whatever you want. The Constitution matters in these cases. That set off a string of other high profile cases that began making the news because the media was then paying attention and legislators started asking questions about why are we removing so so many kids? How are we making these decisions? Because you know, we know that when a kid is separated from their family, even if it's justified, that separation is traumatic and removal decisions are not to be taken lightly. So into that space is where we got to House Bill 567. It's an attempt to address some of these problems that have led to high removal rates and really has led to inconsistencies in removal what? rates. Let's talk about that question of removal. So obviously, and I think I can speak for everyone when I say, when there's criminal activity in which a child's a victim, removal is not only warranted, but morally justified. Right. I'm assuming we're not talking about all slam dunk cases like that. No, we're not. And to be honest with you, the majority of kids who go into foster care, there are very few slam dunk cases. There's this perception of what it means when a kid goes into foster care based on the way that people generally get exposed to it through the news media. The news is going to report on the shocking cases, right? Those cases where we all agree, oh my gosh, we've got to do something to protect these kids. That is a very low percentage of the number of kids in foster care. The majority in Texas, by about 75% of kids in foster care, are in for neglect, not things like physical or sexual abuse. 
And we've done research over the last year on, okay, what does neglect even mean? Um, And in Texas, that definition is surprisingly broad. And in my opinion, allows for a lot of hypothetical situations. So putting your child in a situation that could have resulted in harm, harm is not required. All that's required is somebody saying, well, you probably shouldn't have done that because your child could have gotten harmed. And I think that's led to some cases, one in particular, a mother named Carrie Ann Roy in the Austin area. Fortunately, she didn't have her kids removed, but she was investigated because she let them play on the playground across the street from their house where she could see them through the window. And a neighbor saw the kids playing without adult supervision and called CPS. The investigators showed up and then interviewed her young children outside of her presence and asked them about things that the children had no business knowing about, such as drug use, alcohol use, and uh, pornography. Investigator actually had to describe to the children what pornography was because they didn't understand what she meant, all because they got to play by themselves outside. So... That is kind of an extreme example, but where the rubber really meets the road for me on neglect is the research that we've done that shows a statistical connection between poverty and neglect. If you live in one of the 25 poorest counties in Texas, you are statistically more likely to have involvement with Child Protective Services over an allegation of neglecting your children than if you live in one of the 25 wealthiest counties in Texas. Now, this is something that child welfare professionals have been talking about for years, this confusion of poverty with neglect. We've just been able to quantify it in Texas over the last year with this research that we've put out to show that, yes, this is in fact a phenomenon that is happening that we can show through the data and through the statistics. And we need to address that problem because we're disproportionately impacting poor and minority communities because of that. You know, over in the criminal justice space, you know, we hear to no end about the criminalization of poverty. And there is something to that. It's it's just saddening to see it over in the child welfare space where, you know, again, it'd be a, a hyperbolic example, but essentially saying like, oh, I just don't understand why you didn't leave the child with the nanny, where that tends to be a very affluent response to uh, issue of child supervision. And again, that's a hyperbolic uh, example of that. But But it's not necessarily hyperbolic because the situation for the working class, low income person is I have to catch the bus to make it to my job or I'm going to get fired. My babysitter's running late. So do I leave my child alone for 10 minutes while the babysitter's on their way to avoid losing my job and potentially losing my home? So I also understand that this is an area of federal policy interest as well. What does the federal landscape look like? Well, back in 2018, Congress passed probably one of the biggest overhauls of federal child welfare funding in 30 years. They call it the Family First Prevention Services Act. Uh, President Trump signed it into law, and it's coming into effect for Texas in October of this year. The long and short of what Family First does is it shifts the culture of child welfare away from removing kids and toward preserving families. So to try to make something complicated as simple as possible, under Title 4E of the Social Security Act, and I can already see people's eyes glazing over, federal money that goes to states to help them operate their foster care system could only be used to maintain kids once they'd already been removed into foster care. What Family First does is say, okay, states, you can now use this Title IV-E money on services that are intended to keep kids with their families and prevent them from coming into the system. So we're talking about those kids who are like right on the edge, but for some type of intervention, they're going to come into the system. The states are now given the flexibility to keep those kids out of the system under Title IV-E. 
I think that's overall a good shift. Now, there's some complexities involved with how do you implement that in a fiscally responsible way? Uh, how do you do it in an effective way that's uh, community service driven? But overall, that's a good shift. There's also issues on keeping kids out of institutional placements and getting incentivizing them to go into family foster homes. Those are also good things. There's some complexities there that I won't get into on this podcast. But what that tells us is Texas needs to really be looking at our decisions around removals because our incentive is now not to remove kids. Our incentive is going to be how do we keep these kids in a safe, stable home without the need for foster care? That seems like such a common sense approach that uh, it's kind of surprising that the feds actually beat us to it. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> far be it from me to uh, to speak ill of the second best bill that President Trump signed, second to the First Step Act, of course. But you're not biased at all. <laughs> not at all. So walk us through HB 567. What does that do? How does that tie in family first? How does that address the shortcomings you've already identified? Right. So 567 goes directly at many of the issues around removal that we're talking about. And what it does is it recognizes that if we're moving to preservation under Families First, we have to also amend the statutory requirements that govern the decision making that CPS and the child welfare courts make on determining whether or not a child should be removed. Give that extra flexibility to keep kids with their families or return them to their families with uh, additional services. So really our aim with this bill is to reduce the harm caused by unnecessary separation of children from their families. We want to prioritize support for families over removal and separation. We want to allow kids in foster care to either return home or be adopted more quickly, depending on what's the best outcome for that child. And then we want to ensure accuracy and fairness in CPS investigations. People often forget that Child Protective Services, this is a civil action. This is not a criminal action, but it carries one of the stiffest penalties that we can give, which is the permanent termination of a parent's right to their relationship with their child. It's so severe that the U.S. Supreme Court has called it the civil death penalty. That's what we're dealing with uh, in 567. So within that, we come directly at the neglect issue. We tighten that definition of neglect up. Um, and we put some parameters in to make sure that conditions of poverty aren't confused with neglect. And so families who are struggling to make ends meet aren't punished for being poor. We're also doing very basic things like requiring the department, the lawyers who file in court to ask for removals of kids to abide by the same rules that every other attorney in the states meant to abide by. So there's this really weird phenomenon that happens in child welfare where if I'm an attorney working for DFPS, I'll file a boilerplate petition that alleges every single possible ground in the code for removing your kids and terminating your rights. We've seen this play out where, and I've seen petitions filed where they allege that the child was killed when the child is very much alive and sitting right there in the courtroom. In every other area of law, that's called a frivolous pleading and you can lose your license if you do it. It doesn't apply in DFPS. So all we're saying uh, is, no, you've got to plead with specificity. DFPS. Like if you're going to remove a child, you need to plead only the facts and the evidence that you can actually prove in court and not just throw the kitchen sink at them and see what sticks. There are also some issues, we call this the non-offending parent provision. So oftentimes when a child's removed, the department will treat both parents the same and go for removal and termination against both parents. Well, that becomes a problem when you have issues of domestic violence, for example, where maybe only one parent is the perpetrator 
And the other parent may very well be a victim, but that parent is then punished for being a victim because they're now at risk of losing their kids to the state. And so essentially what we're doing is putting language in that says the department, you have to go after the individual perpetrator. And if you have evidence that one caregiver is a perpetrator and the other one is a victim, you do everything you possibly can to keep those kids with the non-offending parent, with that innocent parent. One of the really cool benefits of this is I think it gives women especially who are victims of domestic violence a way to escape that situation. A few other pieces that I think are really interesting is putting a deadline for a final resolution for child welfare trials. Under our current code, the moment a child is removed, a clock starts, and the state is required to conclude that case within 12 months after a child is removed. I think there's some good and there's some bad to these timelines, but the intent behind it is to make sure kids aren't in foster care for an unnecessarily long amount of time. The problem is, once you start that final trial in which that last decision is getting made, there's no requirement that says you have to end within a certain time. And so there was a case, we call it the three-year trial, where they started that final hearing and then they kept delaying and they kept recessing and kept recessing. And that final hearing didn't conclude for 18 months after they started it. And so these kids ended up in custody for more than three years. And it it really is an absurd result, but basically all we're doing with 567 is saying, okay, once you start that final trial, you got to wrap it up in 90 days and make a decision on whether these kids are going home or whether these kids are going to be adopted so that they're not languishing and the department's not just delaying, delay, delay. And then the last piece is bringing in some due process protections when families are ordered to comply with services. Uh, Our Center for the American Future had a case that they just won recently. It's the EADS case. You can read about it on texaspolicy.com. But this was a family who ultimately, in my opinion, was falsely accused and falsely brought into a child welfare case. Fortunately, their children were never removed from them. But through this obscure provision of code, the department kept them under services that the court ordered for an indefinite amount of time. And within this area of code, essentially, it just says the court can order a family to comply with whatever the services the department tells them to. The threat being, if you don't comply, we're going to take your kids away from you. There's zero due process protections for families in this current section of code. Essentially, it's a blank check for the department to just keep families under services for however long they want to keep them under services and even change the rules of the road along the way. So essentially, the fix that we're doing in 567 is putting clear, consistent processes, clarifying that there is, in fact, a standard of proof that the department has to meet, and then requiring the services that a family has to comply with to be specific and narrowly tailored to addressing the safety issue that the department has been able to prove. So again, getting rid of that blank check and getting families out from under these draconian, endless orders of supervision. Well, Andrew, I think I speak for most Texans when I say we're very appreciative of the work that you and the stakeholder community has put into this issue. We're appreciative to Chairman Frank for having filed, Chairwoman Niave for having set, and uh, Speaker Phelan for elevating this as a important issue in this particular legislature. So, Absolutely. So our sincere thanks. Well, thank you. And again, the folks you named are really the ones who are leading on it. And we're grateful. Excellent. Well, Andrew, I appreciate you joining us today. I will send somebody down with your customized uh, bookmark here shortly. Thank you all for joining. I am Dr. Derek Cohen, and this has been the Foundation Podcast.